Welcome to the EntreEd Talk podcast, the show by educators for educators, parents, and the community. We're so excited to bring this to you. I'm Toy. And I'm Laura. And we're excited to uplift best practices in entrepreneurship education. And don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the EntreEd Talk podcast on whatever platform you listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another fun-filled episode of the EntreEd Talk podcast. We are delighted to have with us today Jeff Remington. Jeff is an educator and an advocate who is involved in countless professional organizations, both on the local, state, and national levels. He is a 2002 Presidential Awardee for Excellence in Mathematics and Science Teaching, the recipient of the Paul DeHart Heard Award for Exemplary Middle-Level Science Teaching and Leadership, the Nevelyn J. Nisley Award for Inspirational Teaching. He was named the Palmyra Middle School Teacher of the Year by Palmyra Area Education Association and the Middle School Teacher of the Year by the Palmyra Middle School PTO. He also received a White House Commendation for Impact in Education and a Commendation for Achievement in Education by the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. He's currently among the 50 finalists for the 2020 Global Teacher Prize sponsored by the Varkey Foundation. So, so much to dive into, so cool. Jeff, welcome. We're excited to have you today. Thank you so much. It was happy to be here. This is really fun. So we are going to we're going to get into so many things, but before we dive into all of it, Jeff, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and your journey and what got you to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Be happy to. So 34 years ago, I uh, received a, a degree in secondary science education from Indiana University of Pennsylvania, where I met my wife, Helen, who's also an award-winning teacher and a mentor to me. Once we graduated IUP, we landed in uh, Palmyra, Pennsylvania. And for reference, Palmyra is about a mile from the Hershey Chocolate Factory. So since landing here, I've been blessed to have lots and lots of uh, mentors that have really helped me out through the years. Uh, those mentors include my father-in-law and so many other people along the way that I really wanted to be a sponge of their wisdom, their action, and their kindness. And they've just encouraged me to, uh, to pay it forward. So that's kind of where I am 34 years later. I love the concept of pay it forward, by the way. I think that's the only thing we can expect to do in life and, and put everything out good to the universe and see what comes back. Absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit more about your teaching style. You clearly won a ton of awards for teaching. How did you get into the whole experiential learning models or type of curriculum? Okay. Well, so, I, you know, initially I was reluctant to become a teacher so my father had encouraged me to do so um, most of the time I was in high school. So I did pursue that. But I wanted to fly jets for the Navy. Um, I did pursue the Navy pathway for a while, but it ended up being dropped from the program due to some minor medical conditions that would impact how I would fly as a pilot. Um, it was heartbreaking for me at the time, but the setback, kind of a, a good thing because it really put me in a place where I could thrive. My father-in-law, who I mentioned earlier, J. Kevin Scanlon, uh, he was a chemist at PPG Industries uh, and very active in what's called the Pittsburgh Spectroscopy Society. This organization of chemists uh, had outreach uh, and they promoted uh, science education through free professional development, resources for teachers. Well, my father-in-law kind of took me under his wing 
And he took me to one of the Spectroscopy Society's events over 30 years ago. Uh, it was called 50 Demonstrations to Knock Your Student's Socks Off. Uh -huh. So seeing this guy do just amazing, amazing tricks with chemicals and all that, that's all I needed. So I thought, well, this is great. Education is going to be great. I can be a science showman for my students. So I became an edutainer. Uh, my students loved it. But, uh, you know, as a starting teacher, you want to be admired by your students. You want to be the, the center of attention. But as I started to do more and more of that, I saw that I was giving them an experience, but it was just a surface level experience. And that experience was fleeting. It didn't seem like it was giving them any deep understanding or lasting uh, knowledge. So from there, I looked into something um, that's called project-based learning. People abbreviated PBLs. Um, and that evolved a teaching style for me that uh, I've tried to incorporate whenever I can. So project-based learning or PBLs, they're just a teaching method in which students learn by actively engaging in real world and personally meaningful projects. So PBLs involve collaboration between students and academic subjects. PBLs incubate entrepreneurship, problem solving, innovation, creativity, divergent thinking, critical thinking. These PBLs were STEM thinking before STEM was even coined as a phrase. I mean, they've probably been around for 50 years, but uh, are resurging again in their popularity. So when I started to use these methods of experiential learning, sustained student engagement went up. Okay, so when I started off, I had student engagement, but it was at the showmanship level, and it wasn't very deep. But once I switched to the focus on student-centered learning through their engagement, sustained achievement went up. Students learned better. I could see that that was happening. So less focus was on me as the teacher. More focus was on the student learner. Students gained ownership of their learning. And it was at that point that I realized that I create a vision or knack for producing these types of learning experience for students and soon, soon started to get recognized for them. Amazing. You know, as you're talking, it reminds me of Bill Nye. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to hear him speak in person, but certainly a fun kind of, you know, academic, but bring it real to the kids. Um, he came and spoke in Charleston, West Virginia. I've also had the opportunity to to see Carl Sagan and, and lots, you know, some other scientists. So fun. Legends. Legends, exactly. Absolutely. And you, you sit there, you just, it's, it's exciting to, to know that you're in the room with them. Yeah. The, the big brainiacs, as I call them. Yeah. So you've mentioned, you know, project-based learning. Can you tell us some of the notable projects that, you know, that your students have either brought to you or you've encouraged them to do? Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, 30, 34 years ago, when I was starting to delve into project-based learning, I soon discovered that this type of learning, this experiential learning, was not a normal part of curricular funding back in those days. So back in those days, schools paid for books, paper, pencil, simple lab supplies, but they really didn't pay for creative experiences. So I learned quickly how to be a grant writer and have written many grants to fund those experiences throughout my career. So when I think back, I think there's, there's probably five projects that ended up being very key stepping stones along my career pathway. Uh, and these opened doors to entire new levels of education influence that reach beyond my classroom. So the first one um, that I can remember in the 1980s, we did a project called Future World. And um, students were called to form entrepreneurial groups. 
And with all project-based learning, you try and have a driving question, something that drives the learning. Um, these project-based learning experiences are not one single class. They are prolonged periods of time, several days to several weeks. So the driving question for our Future World project was, could students create companies that propose solutions to pressing problems the world was facing? So in our neck of the woods, nuclear waste storage, because we lived in the shadow of TMI, and that was still through Mile Island, um, which is our country's worst nuclear disaster. So that was still fresh in people's minds. Save food supplies, because we live in a farming area, and a lot of local farms were turning into factory farms. And then solid waste management. Um, we had uh, issues where our landfills were being filled from places like New Jersey and out of state. Uh, the area that I live in was expanding, so um, our sewer authority was reading, reaching capacity. So we partnered with those segments of business and industry, and we toured their facilities in our area, and we invited those professionals um, to come and mentor our students and judge their work. They had to create solutions for those kind of problems, and they had to do a public presentation, and we had those outside agencies pop in and help us out. That uh, first project uh, led to an award, which is uh, called the JC's Junior Achievement of America uh, Outstanding Young Educator Award, and that led to a second project. So the second project I also started in the 80s was called a Grasshopper Field Study. So the driving question for the Grasshopper Field Study was, what is the impact of habitat alteration on a population of grasshoppers, and what lessons can we learn from that? So again, we live in an area right here where we're starting to, we have been experiencing urban sprawl. And with all this development in factory farming, uh, we were losing more and more natural habitat. So um, we did this project where we had 300 students. We actually created a natural area by our school because land was being used up. So we found a spot that we could create a natural area. We had the kids collect and safely tag grasshoppers. We had over 300 students participate in this. Once they were collected and tagged, we put a little nail polish on their legs, um, colored nail polish. Um, we uh, oh, tag a grasshopper. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, they thought it was a nail salon, so I think the the grasshopper was <laughs> I don't know. Um, but but then once we had them collected and tagged and and took data on them, we altered a portion of their habitat, which we literally cut it down to the ground, um, and then we released all the grasshoppers again with the tags. Came back two days later, recollected them to track their movements, and sort of as we you know would have figured the grasshoppers moved from where the habitat was altered to try and find other places, but then it became overcrowded and stressed the population. So that particular project led to a presidential award that led to a nice amount of money from that award, which I thought would be a good opportunity to take that money and reinvest it in seed money. So the third project I think about is the Palmyra Haiti Technology Project. And this was a collaboration between our schools in Palmyra and schools in St. Mark, Haiti. And our goal was to create, maintain, and share STEM experiences for kids. We didn't know they were STEM at the time. Now looking back, they are STEM. We created science and technology labs down in Haiti. We created something called a collaborative wiki. Wikis don't exist anymore, but wikis were the learning platforms of the you know, 80s, 90s, uh, turn of the century. 
And we tried to foster empathy for global inequity with our students here in Palmyra. Uh, I was even able to involve my graduate students as well from Lebanon Valley College and created a study abroad opportunity for one of my grad students. And to this date, it's still the only study abroad in Haiti that my college has ever had. They've never, they, when, when they think study abroad, they're thinking Rome, they're thinking Paris, they're thinking London, but they, they weren't quite thinking Haiti. So that led to um, an Isley Award for Lebanon Valley College, which was awesome and uh, came with it a little bit more money to reinvest in education. So then this was around the year 2000 and in education history around 2000, we had uh, the new education act called the No Child Left Behind Act. And this was um, a call to action to make education accountable. And science was part of that. At the time, I was uh, a science chair uh, in our district. So thought, well, you know, how can we get kids more accountable in science? And what I saw was through all these other projects, if we had project-based kind of a learning, student-centered learning, that would really be helpful. So at that point, there was a uh, group out of University of California, Berkeley, that developed an education system called FOSS, which is the full option science system. Uh, the main author was Dr. Larry Lowry. Um, the interesting thing about UC Berkeley is they have turned out more science Nobel laureates than any other university on the planet. So they know a thing or two about science and science education. So this FOSS system really did authentic, experiential, project-based type learning, and our kids thrived on that. We've been using it for the past 20 years, and for those past 20 years, we have led our local region in science scores, and we are one of the top uh, schools in the state with science scores. And I firmly believe it's because of that fully invested science um, student engagement. Uh, studies have shown that when you do that kind of engagement, you um, have more senses involved, emotions involved, and you do get deeper, deeper um, learning uh, with, uh, with brain-based theory, student-focused. So that led to another series of award opportunities, gratefully, the Heard Award, which is a national award for middle school teaching. And then I um, was able to uh, also be part of what's called a teacher STEM ambassador program in which uh, there were 10 of us from the presidential awardees that were selected to advocate for STEM around the country and around the world, which led to also um, an amazing group called the STEM uh, Revolution Training Group, which goes around the world and tries to transform countries into um, training in STEM. And it ultimately led to um, something I'm currently a finalist in called the Global Teacher Prize, which is uh, just an amazing thing. So my last project that, uh, that I think of is a project I just implemented recently, and it's called a Box Top Mini Golf Course. And um, two years ago, my uh, administration asked if I would start STEM at the middle school and if I would create a program and teach the program. So we created a full entrepreneurship program that involves PBLs, computational thinking, design thinking, um, you know, looking into STEM jobs, all those kind of things. So with our box top mini golf course companies, what we have the students do is we arrange the students in groups of four based on their differences and not their similarities. So we forcibly put kids together that think differently because in the real world, 
you're not going to be working with your best friends. You're going to be working with people that have a certain skill set. So we, we start off with that, and then we challenge them to take an empty box top from a copy box and build a mini golf course for another group. So they enter in this client and developer relationship, again, to simulate what real life is all about, and they uh, enter into something called design thinking. So in design thinking, you have to have empathy for your customer. You got to get to know your customer, and you use that empathy to design something for them that they want. So, so I know it's a lot, but those are five projects that really stand out to me, and I've loved every one of them. Wow. That, those are really incredible. And I have been furiously writing down things. Um, <laughs> this, is, uh, th this is really cool because we, we, we talk with educators and when we train educators through EntreAd. And when we talk about entrepreneurship, it's, it's everything you just said. So I'm so excited to unpack some of the stuff. So you were in PBL before, before those things were cool. Yeah. Really. Where they were, they were, you know, household terms. When we do entrepreneurship, we do it in terms of design-based thinking. Yep. And, and we start with that deep customer empathy and yep. do, and, you know, we walk teachers through that process because we're not, when we talk about entrepreneurship, we don't talk about it in terms of like high school business ed class. We talk about it in terms of everything you just said, like your very first project where you were doing um, solutions to TMI, nuclear waste, and, yep. and all of those things. Like that's that's exactly what we what we talk about. It's funny because you and I have so many similarities. I was going to fly jets in the Air Force. I don't think Laura even. <laughs> I think Laura, I'm impressed. Two years in ROTC at Clemson University, and then and I was also in engineering. And after two years, you signed on the dotted line, right? Yep. So that's what I did. Years, Five a.m. Uh, you know these runs in the morning and all yep. of this stuff. They they sat me down and said, "Oh no, you have scoliosis. You're you're out." So okay, yeah, same thing. I was like, "Wait yeah. a minute, wait now what?" <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. So you know how I feel. You've got empathy there. I I had a condition I couldn't valsalva, which is your your nose and your eustachian tube's ability to rapidly change to pressure differences. Wow. Normally wouldn't affect you in anything because you're in a plane that's pressurized to one atmosphere, but apparently fighter jets aren't that way. So. So who knows? I mean, like you with scoliosis, he's, it gives you an appreciation for how perfect you have to be to be a pilot. Yeah. And it's funny because the, you know, my back has, I have issues, but it's never gotten in my way. I mean, I did the two years of the stuff, right? Like yeah. I the test and then, yeah. like, but anyway, it, it excluded me from all military service, which really yeah. was a big bummer. But, um, and then after that, I, um, I actually worked in nuclear power. <laughs> Okay, there we go. <laughs> so, so my comment about TMI, TMI was horrible, but we did yeah. take, take care of it, which was, um, which was a kind of a credit to our, our system. Really interested in, in how you figured all of this out before it was kind of educator speak, you know, I mean, you were doing these, these groups and you had experiential learning, you had, you know, student driven projects and everything was student centered, collaborative. I love that you brought in the community. I love that. I mean, these are all of the things that we preached yeah. <laughs> for educators now. So it's just really exciting that you figured all of that out. So it's, it's really no wonder that you won all of, all of these awards. Um, I'm curious though, because you were kind of pioneering these things, did you get any pushback or have any challenges when you're, 
you know, you're doing something a little bit different probably than the science or math teacher down the hallway. Did you have any issues there? Yeah, no, I, I don't think everybody was very supportive. You know, everybody, when No Child Left Behind hit, everybody was really, really concerned about how am I going to get this laundry list of curricular items done? And when we go training around the world, no matter what country you're in, all the teachers have the same thing. This is our national curriculum. How are we going to get the laundry list done? You know, so I would say if there's one thing that really concerned people, that was it. Um, figuring out funding, because if people don't really understand what you're doing, they're hesitant to give you funding for it. Um, you know, we're so used in education to doing things as they always have been done for the past hundred years that uh, people are leery about investing in anything that's new, even though there's been so much brain research the past 10, 15 years saying how crazy good um, these kind of experiences are for deep, rich learning and real life application, you know, instead of extraneous things that we're valuing in education for the past hundred years that really don't have a great application once kids graduate. To that, I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit, because you, you mentioned it, but a little bit more about divergent thinking. Yeah. So divergent thinking, if people aren't familiar with that, divergent thinking is the type of thinking where you try and come up with multiple solutions to a problem. And I would say when I started teaching STEM the past two years, I, I thought that kids would be better at divergent thinking, but boy, did it surprise me. So what I've noticed is our kids, and I think this is universal, have been so ingrained into thinking that there is one single right answer for every test that they've got to take, every question, that they've totally got to hyper-focus on what is the one right answer and what does that lead to? That leads to stress from parents, administrators, staff members, and students that want to know, well, just give me the answer or give me an example so I can know exactly what to do. And we've, we've enabled this kind of thinking where if the kids don't have an example right in front of them, they shut down. They are leery to think outside the box. They're leery to fail. The, the interesting thing I've had in STEM for two years is uh, really pushing them to not give them examples, which frustrates them. But now I'm, this is going to be my second year into teaching STEM, and I'm already seeing a difference in the kids where their, their, their creativity is starting to come out. I feel like we need to do that more on a national level, but it's that, that comfort level that we've got to get into. Yeah, that's, that's a, big, a big thing that we, we talk about with teachers because that's hard. We, we do it. We did it to them, right? So yeah. as they move up to kindergarten, divergent thinking all day long. And then yeah. by middle school, it's what's the answer? How do I solve it? Show me the model. Show me the yep. stats. Well, our policies um, have created that. We want to see that our kids hit a standard. And with the type of thinking and, and creativity innovation you're teaching in the classroom, there may not be a standard and you don't want a standard. We talk about the organic process and you're obviously seeing your kid, kids yes. organically grow. Absolutely. And that makes policymakers nervous. You know? Well, so to, to interject here, so the National Science Foundation had a grant that involved the National Science Teachers Association, National Councils of Teachers of Mathematics to create 
this position for these 10 national STEM teacher ambassadors. What they did is they opened it up to all the presidential awardees. And from there, they vetted it down to 10 and they gave us policy training so that we could go um, on Capitol Hill, you know, Washington or locally. I've done a lot of work in Harrisburg to try and let policymakers really see and understand that. And uh, in Pennsylvania, we have been working hard, but we're, we're getting them to adopt new science and technology standards that are going to be more reflective of the kind of learning that we, we value more than what it was in the past. So, uh, so we're, we're doing the policy angle as well. And I appreciate that because that's my background. I have a master's in public administration. I'm really, and was a lobbyist for several years. I think that grassroots lobbying can't be stressed enough. I think people shy away from it. Oh, why should I write my senator or congressperson or go to the school board and talk? And I think it's very important to let them know. I, I, I was telling someone recently, I had a conversation with our superintendent about a classroom issue that I felt affected everybody in the school. And he thanked me for coming to him because he said, if I hadn't, he would never know. Um, right. Parents didn't express what's really happening with their kids. Um, so with all this, do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Totally, totally think I'm an entrepreneur. So, but it wasn't until I worked with STEM Revolution that I figured that out because uh, it was really this organization, STEM Revolution, that really taught that entrepreneurship angle. And the more I was teaching, I'm like, I think I've been doing this my whole career. So STEM Revolution is an entrepreneurial group and tries to push STEM uh, kind of all around the world and, and show people what that's all about. But uh, in doing that, I, you know, I realized that from the get-go, I was doing design thinking, I think, before design thinking was even labeled. I really felt deeply that I wanted to have empathy for all stakeholders in education when I was planning whatever, whatever project I was doing. I wanted to think of, well, how, well, you know, what would the parents think of this? What would the administration think of this? The school board? What would labor and industry think of this? Higher ed, like really thinking, what do all those people want out of me, their servant, their public servant as a teacher, and how can I try and fulfill as many of those roles as possible? And once I started thinking about those lenses, I think this all just kind of fit organically. Well, and that goes back to what you're talking about with grant funding. And I used to swear off my grant writing class in graduate school until now I'm a grant writer and on a grant. Toy and I serve under a grant, as do you. And, um, and we know the, now the importance of funding. And it's going back to what you said. If people don't understand what you do, then they're not going to fund you. And I think that's an excellent way to look at it through their lens. We, we want our lens, but it's really their lens, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And what, what I found as an extension, you, you talked about lobbying before. What I found as a sweet spot was not just talking to lawmakers, but to talking to labor and industry leaders, whether that's at the government level um, or whether that's whole scale business and industry. In Pennsylvania, we were, like many states, trying to land HQ2 for Amazon. And uh, of course, tax incentives would be helpful to that. But HQ2, they really wanted to have a STEM literate workforce. That was a big priority for them. So once I learned that, boy, that gave me a great platform to go around and talk to business leaders. And they got it. When they get it, they talk to 
lawmakers and then lawmakers get it. So, so it was very beneficial to have all that work. I think that that's, that's really a key. I, it, it seems it's, it's a theme that emerges over and over again when we talk to awesome educators like yourself, Jeff, it's, it's, um, it's that outreach and that's, that's tough for teachers sometimes. It's that outreach and that connection between the school and local industry and then you know the the legal connections and the government connections and it's it's that kind of I, I hate using this word anymore but the ecosystem yeah, <laughs> of, right. of it, when when everyone feels like they have a stake in the school and what's happening it becomes more important it, and a, on a bigger scale right I think that's when like you said that's when you get you get the, the government and you get people to start advocating for you and that's that, that over and over again, when we talk to these amazing educators, that's what they say. That's a, bringing that community in did wonders for the school. Right. I, I love that you do that. And I love that you think bigger than the walls of the school and, and who are the actual stakeholders. And like you said, with Amazon, you know, what, what, are, what are the people that are going to employ these students looking for and yep. what do they need them to know? And it's those skills, those mindsets that we need to be building in kids. It's so, so important. So to that, um, I wondered if you could share, since we have a lot of educators that listen to this podcast, um, if, if an educator is trying to do something or get something started similar to what you've been doing, what, would, what advice might you give that person? Okay, so the first thing I would say is have a growth mindset. So if you don't know much about growth mindset, Google it. There's so much information about a growth mindset. I think if you want to do anything in STEM in your school uh, or learning in general, if your school doesn't have a strong philosophy of growth mindset, you're really going to struggle because we're at a point in education where you've got to get buy-in. You've got to get buy-in from all the stakeholders Growth mindset to me is the key to that. I feel like that's very, very helpful. Um, growth mindset involves taking risks. Don't be afraid to do things on your own. Fail forward. All those kind of things. But please, readers or listeners, please look into growth mindset. I would also say actively build a PLN, and a PLN is a professional learning network. So I would build one locally within your school. You know, have a book club. See what you can do there. Um, expand out and see if there's something at your state level. Uh, for us, it's our Pennsylvania Science Teachers Association. Uh, many of these associations, whether it's a state level or national level, their numbers are shrinking because a lot of people think, well, I can just find things online. Well, you really miss out if you don't have that face-to-face -face networking. That is all part of this entrepreneurship that is a huge part of it. There's so much you can do when you're seeing somebody face-to-face. -face. Social distancing moving forward, but still <laughs> still face-to-face. -face. Um, I would also say, you know, when I look back to things, I think you got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen, develop empathy to inform your practice. And, uh, you know, twice as much on the listening, one part talking. And uh, I think that's going to get you going. Awesome. You are involved. Your hands are like everywhere, I feel like, and it's phenomenal. You're very inspiring. Wait, I know the Global Teaching Award's coming up. You're still probably grant writing, I'm sure. I'm sure that never ends. Uh, you're doing the STEM work in your classroom. What's next? What are you looking for down the road? Yeah, well, I'm actually, I'm about a year away from uh, retirement. Um, 
and I'm just going to say retirement, retirement in quotes, because I would still love to do more things. Unfortunately, with uh, with COVID-19, there, there's a lot of talk about possibly giving retirement incentives uh, to teachers because there's going to be an awful lot of furloughs coming in. So um, planned retirement is about a year away. But, you know, as budget cuts happen, who knows, that may be accelerated. But uh, but then I would love to get into some way to be an innovator and scalable education practice and policy um, with a startup, business, government, um, to, to kind of take the knowledge that uh, and the experience that I've been so blessed to have from all these mentors and try and pay that forward on a larger scale uh, to more people. So that's that's one big thing I'd like to do. Uh, the other thing is a lot of a lot of time with my grandson and uh, family and friends. How old your grandson? Uh, he's he's two and a half. Oh. And man, if there was ever a grandson that's uh, into STEM and entrepreneurship and sports and all that, it's it's uh, it's Luke. Awesome. So we we like to keep this as kind of a, a drive time show. So um, we'll we'll start to wrap up. But how could folks get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing and where you're going and all of those good things. Yeah, so um, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cy underscore Rem. That's at Cy, S-C-I underscore R-E-M. Uh, and I'm also on, uh, on LinkedIn. So they can search Jeff Remington on LinkedIn and, uh, and they'll, they'll find me, be happy to connect. Awesome. Thank you. This oh, was really fun. We love talking to educators. Awesome. You guys are inspiring. <laughs> so we try. <laughs> by everybody else. It's, you know, we, every time we do this podcast, I think at least I, and I'm sure Tori says the same. It reminds us of why we do what we do. And we want to come to your school and then go to Hershey next door. There you go. Project. That's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was at Hershey Park many, 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 many years ago. And I remember there was like a, new flavor or something coming out and we got lucky enough to be picked to our fan my family to go and and taste test all of these different chocolates awesome <laughs> that's pretty cool awesome but so 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 thankful that you are here today jeff and that you spent spent some time with us um but uh we we and we really appreciate it so we thank you and um we can't wait to to hear more about you and connect more with you Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Stay healthy. Thank you. You too.